if you'll grab a copy of Scripture, open to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, you'll find that on page 1211 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1,211. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, there's one there for you. Uh, you can open up and follow along with us out of God's Word. be good for you to follow. If you don't uh, follow with me today, you might think, and now is this really in the Bible? Is, did Jesus really say this? Uh, so therefore you can verify it for yourself. It's right there uh, from the Lord's mouth, directly given to us as a uh, a gift, a treasure. Uh, we should be so appreciative and so thankful and so grateful that God has given us His truth and that He's so straightforward with us. Uh, he doesn't want any uh, anybody to wonder. He doesn't want to leave any room for speculation. And today He will share a parable with us that will be very, very instructive. Uh, it will teach us much about Him, much about us, much about the world in which we live in. Because certainly, uh, apart from the directness of the Lord, we would uh, have lots of room for confusion. Lots of questions that we might come up with our own answers to and reasons for things. And, and we get, get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. But really, if there's a message in Luke 20, it is that Jesus is a specific person. He is a unique uh, individual. He's, he is God incarnate. He is, a, he is fully man, fully God there on earth. And he is uh, teaching not only the people that are before him in this moment, but he's teaching us this morning that he is, uh, he is one specific certain person. And if we uh, come up with our own ideas, then we are going to have to suffer the consequences of our own ideas. But he's given us every opportunity to know him for who he is. And that, this is a, definitely uh, a shocking parable. And so I've titled this message, The Shocking Truth of Jesus. Luke chapter 20, we'll begin reading in verse 9. Then Jesus began to tell the people this parable. There was a certain man who planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the vine dresser, the owner of the vineyard, said this, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come. He will destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Now, when the people heard this, they said, certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. 
And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And God, we declare now that we want to receive it this morning. We know that it is perfect and inerrant, Lord, that it says exactly what you intended for it to say. And it speaks directly to us as it has spoken to every generation that precedes us and it will to every generation to follow until you come. And so, Lord, help us to to reckon in our hearts, Lord, with what you have to say this morning. God, we need to hear from you and we ask that your spirit would work among us that we might have ears to hear this morning and hearts to receive in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, let's understand the context of what's going on. I want you to understand that when this is taking place, it's Wednesday. It's Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus is two days from the cross. He'll be crucified two days from this moment. And so as the the pressure is mounting and the the tension is building and the the chief priests, the scribes, the teachers of the law are uh, their anger and resentment towards Jesus is really hitting a, a fever pitch and they are uh, they're absolutely consumed with uh, killing him with destroying him with shutting him up because everything that he is saying is going against everything that they have uh, conjured up in their own religious minds and in their own legalistic system and so uh, Jesus here is speaking to a crowd of people. So there's a mixture of people there. He's, he's speaking to everyone in the crowd. He's speaking really directly about uh, the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders uh, that are there among him. But what he has to say is truly, truly remarkable. Now, let's understand where we were last week. As we moved into chapter 20, we were immediately confronted uh, with this exchange that was happening in the first eight verses between Jesus and the religious leaders, where, um, again, what Jesus is exposing is that people then, just as people now, have a tendency to create their own Jesus, you know, we live in a time and a culture where, especially in, in this southern uh, United States, in the Bible Belt, where if you, you, you walk around and you talk to people and almost everyone says, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, I believe in Jesus, you know, and, and they just so freely will just make that remark. And the reason that we're... Uh, we hear that, and yet you read Scripture, and the Bible says that the gate is narrow, and few are going to go through. And you just wonder sometimes to yourself, I mean, what, what is going on here? Well, Luke chapter 20 will explain that to us. In other words, what's happening here is that, yes, all these people who, who claim to know Christ and who claim to be Christians, they believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. They've just made up their own Jesus. And so last week we talked about the Jesus that, uh, that people make up that is, is a Jesus who wants to make us all happy. And so when, when we come across some hard truth of scripture, when we hear a, a sermon that kind of goes against something that, uh, that we're, 
not really fond of or something that we're clinging to in our life, not willing to give up, then what we do is we just say, now, Jesus wouldn't ask me to do that. He wants me to be happy. He wants me to be, uh, you know, prosperous. He wants everything in my life to go good. And if I do that, all these other things are going to happen. And so he doesn't mean that to me. He means that for other people. If he knew all the circumstances of what was going to happen... And so that's why you have people who, who say they're Christians who live in utter and complete defiance of exactly what Scripture says. Not a week passes, not one week passes in my life that I don't have a conversation with someone who is living in utter defiance of Scripture. And I say, now, you know that the Bible says this. And they look at me and they say, yes, I know. I'm working on that. And I said, well, no, you're not. You're not working on that. Because the only reason we're having this conversation right now is because I found out about this. You're not working on it. You have, you'd really have no, you think it's okay. Yeah, you worry about it sometimes. Yeah, when you leave church, you feel a little maybe guilty. But then you get in your car and you drive home and everything's fine. In other words, let's just be real. Let's don't don't pretend here, okay? What you don't want is you don't want uh, somebody who's going to give you a sermon that's going to flatter you, that's going to make you feel good. There's tons of places like that. Anybody can draw a crowd. All you got to do is make everybody feel good about themselves and they'll just pour in. But that's not this place. If you're here this morning, you were looking for that. Well, you are in the wrong place. Because what we're into here is the truth. And the truth is, is that in this room right now, there are people who whose lives are riddled with sin. And you're not broken about that sin. And you, some of you, because no one else in the room but you knows about the sin, you're totally content in your little secret. And it's so absurd because the person who matters most knows every thought and intention of your heart. So there's really nothing hidden from who matters. Believe me, it's not your wife who matters. It's not the, your kids who matter. It's not the people around you and their opinion who matters. Ultimately, the only opinion that matters is the person who's going to judge between life and death. And so we need to quit playing games and making up this Jesus that says, you know, Listen, I'm going to church and I'm, I'm doing all these good things, but I've got this little problem over here or, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend or, you know, I'm, I'm hung up on pornography or I'm stealing from my job or I'm gossiping all the time at home. And just realize that is sin and God is not pleased with sin. And the God of the Bible would declare, no, repent and turn from your wicked ways. But you see, it just morphs into this, this conjured up biblical Christianity that says, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm saved, so I can just do whatever I want to do because I'm saved. I'm okay. I mean, come on. 
That, that doesn't even make any sense. Clearly, there's nowhere in the Scripture where you're going to get any indication that you can just make some conscious decision that you don't want to go to hell, then live any way you want to live, do anything you want to do, and God is somehow obligated to forgive you because you have made some decision in your mind. It just doesn't work like that. Christianity is a relationship with a living God that transforms your life. You are a new creation. Your life bears the fruit of the, of the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. But we're transformed. We're not the people we once were. And our desire is to honor God in every possible way we can. And when we fail and when we sin, it breaks our heart because it grieves the spirit that is within us. And lastly, we, we talked about this, this horribly prevalent tendency to play this game with God where we want to barter, where we want to exchange one thing for another thing. And so whatever this, whatever this area of our lives is that we really don't want to deal with, that we don't want to make hard decisions, that somehow we think that, you know, if, if we're truthful and honest, we're going to lose something that's so important to us. And so what we do is we say, well, God, I'm going to make it up in other areas. I'm going to do all these other things so that you will be okay with this thing over here. It's just insanity. It's insanity. And so that's the context of where this parable is coming from. And this is a shocking, shocking parable because it declares like a megaphone from heaven who God is. I mean, it gives us such a clear picture of his character and nature in such a succinct way. I pray that it will just really just grab hold of our hearts and do an amazing work in us. Let's see, first of all, that Jesus is not just God, but he's a good God. Look at how good he is. Look at verse 9. So Jesus then begins to tell a parable to the people. He says, there's a certain man who planted a vineyard and he leased it to the vine dressers and he went into a far country for a long time. Now, this same parable is given in Matthew 21, also in Mark chapter 12. And so if you read the parable in all the three accounts, because different gospel writers give you different details about the parable, you can gain a little extra uh, information. Like, for example, in Matthew 21, Matthew tells us there was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. So there's a little more detail about what the, uh, the vineyard has in it. And, and the, the vineyard clearly is what God has given. I mean, God is the one who owns the vineyard. He's the one who's established the vineyard. He's the one who's allowed uh, His people, Israel, in this context, to be the keepers, the, 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 the tenants of the vineyard. And so He's gone away. In other words, He's, he's allowed them to be the keepers of the vineyard. Let's think about this for a second. Look at how good God is. God builds a tower in the vineyard. Why does He build a tower? Well, you build a tower in a vineyard to protect the vineyard from intruders. In other words, it's a high point for somebody to be able to watch out and make sure that people aren't coming in and, and stealing the harvest or 
taking advantage of things or whatever the case may be. So there's a tower there for guards to, to be in. The vineyard has a hedge about it. The vineyard is established. It has a good vine. It's, it's a, it's all the, all the things necessary to be successful as a vineyard are all given in advance. Isaiah chapter five, the prophet Isaiah says, my well beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it didn't. It brought forth wild grapes. You see, the, the vineyard has everything in it for one to succeed. So the goodness of God is He didn't place His people in, in a... Uh, just a raw space where they had to figure it out for themselves, where they had to work it out, uh, do all the, the things that needed to be done so that maybe they would be successful. No, he takes his people. So if we look in the context of Israel, in the context of the people that he's speaking to, he moves them into the promised land. The, the land that was plentiful, the land where everything was, was good and, and wonderful. And so he gives them all they need to succeed. And look at the, look at the tenets that they were of that. They took all that God had given them. He gave them his law. He gave them all, all the, the, the perfect natural resources that they would need. And they twisted everything around. They made up their own religion. They, they established this legalistic society where they excluded everyone else and they made it almost impossible for anyone to be able to, to, reached the high point that they were at, and it was just a catastrophe. And there was no harvest. There was no harvest because they were producing no fruit because they had lost their purpose. They, they weren't doing what the vineyard was created to do. And look at us. Look at what God has given us. Look at the place in which He's placed us. Look at the opportunities that He's given us. And so when, when God tells a parable about the failure of those who had the, the responsibility of the vineyard, we should already begin to be asking ourselves some questions. Uh, you know, how, how are we doing as caretakers of the vineyard that God has given us? But you see, just like today, in Jesus' time, That wasn't good enough. The fact that God was good, it just wasn't good enough for him. You see, because they wanted, they wanted more control. They wanted things to be the way that they thought they ought to be. They didn't, they thought that just the fact that the owner, because if you think about it, if, if the landowner had just leased them the land and the, the caretakers had done all the work to create it into a vineyard, even in that scenario, the landowner would be entitled to some of the produce of his land because he's the landowner. But we don't just have that scenario. We have a scenario by which the leasees come into a ready-made turnkey operation. Everything they need is provided. And yet when the, when the owner of everything who did all the work, who established everything for them, when he shows up at harvest time and wants an account for the productivity of the vineyard, they reject him. And so they are blinded by greed. 
They want total control. They don't want anybody telling them what they ought to do. They totally reject the generosity of the vineyard owner. And they fail miserably. And they begin to take advantage of his servants. Look at verse 10. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also, and they treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this presents such a problem in my heart. Because as I read this, knowing what is taking place, knowing what Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to, you just, you're just sort of taken aback a minute by not one, not two, but three servants. Let me ask you a question. What would you do in this situation? What would you do if you own something and you knew that it was extraordinarily dangerous there, that whenever you had sent someone there, horrible things would happen to them, that whoever you sent, you put in great danger. How many times would it take before you just shut down, before you just quit? Think about that. Think about the fact that God comes to Abraham and He tells Abraham that He's going to make a great nation. And through Abraham, God does every single thing necessary to make that happen. In other words, it was God who freed His people from captivity. It was God who cared for them. Every step of the way as they wander through the wilderness, it was God who provided for them in the promised land. It was God who taught them the law so that they would know what to do in, in every circumstance and situation. You know, God never asked His people to do anything He hadn't already explained to Him exactly what to do, just like me and you. We don't run into things and just think, well, what am I, well, what am I supposed to do here? And God's not, you know, looking down from heaven... Scratching his chin, just going, now let's see if you figure this one out. He's a good God. I mean, you read the Old Testament and you see, He has done everything conceivable. And having done all that work in advance. Here's this people, this great nation. That the promise of God has been delivered time and time and time again. But when it comes to harvest time, what do they have? Bitterness. They have a hard heart. They reject the very one who has done everything for them. And so every messenger that comes is beaten or treated shamefully and cast away. In Nehemiah chapter 9, the Scripture says about the people of God, it says, nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and they cast your law behind their backs and they killed your prophets who testified against them. In other words, 
God would send a prophet and they'd be treated shamefully. They'd be, they'd be beaten. They'd be murdered. They'd be mocked. They'd be ignored. And God would send another prophet. And the same thing would happen. And God would send another prophet. And the same thing would happen. Of the prophets, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. I mean, one thing you can thank your lucky stars for this morning is that you weren't an Old Testament prophet. Because if you're into to comfort, if you're into acceptance, if you're into success in a worldly sense, you wouldn't have wanted to be sent by God because they were treated horribly. So this is the situation. Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard says, well, what shall I do? What shall I do now? What would you do? What would you do in this situation? Wouldn't you throw them out? Wouldn't you find a way to overtake them? Wouldn't you be consumed not only with the the ingratitude of the situation, but what about the injustice? In other words, just let yourself be the owner. If it belonged to you and, and someone was occupying what was yours and they were reaping all the blessing and benefit and squeezing everything out of it for their self with no thankfulness in return. And on top of that, every time you sent someone, uh, they would beat them or cast them out or treat them shamefully. In other words, send you a message to leave them alone. We're not interested. We're not, we're not going to cooperate. We're not playing ball with you. We're not playing your game. Wouldn't the injustice of the situation just well up in your heart? Even if you didn't necessarily need it, you would think, but it's not right. It's just not right. They need to be cast out. They got to be thrown out of there. We, we just can't have that. And there's not a person in here that wouldn't feel the same way. But you see, he's not just a good God. He's a marvelously good God. He's a God that is so exceedingly and abundantly above that which we could ask or think that our mind doesn't even work like this God. Look at what happens. So his response to this ingratitude, his response to injustice is, I'm going to send my beloved son. I'm going to send my beloved son. That's what I'm going to do. Now just hold on a second. Don't just get all, you know, don't just run through something just because you know where it's going. Just because the words are in front of you. Just stop a minute. Put yourself in first century Israel. Imagine you're standing there as a religious person. Jesus is standing right in front of you. He's telling this parable. This is a real life circumstance that's taking place. Who's sending their son into this place? Who would even let your kids go near this place? Who's even going to go themselves to this place? You know, yesterday... We were driving around Hattiesburg in our wanderings to find people to help. We went through this uh, neighborhood that was, you know, just utterly devastated. And you could tell that it was a very low-income neighborhood. And there was just, you know, just trash. Every, I mean, it was horrible. 
And so as we're driving through, you know, every person that we saw out on the street or near, you know, we'd roll the windows down in the van and we'd say, you know, how are you doing? Do you need any help? We're not here to make money. We're just here to help people. Can we help you in any way? And so we asked some people and uh, went on along our way. And when we got out, uh, someone was in the uh, van, was on the phone, and they were telling where we were. We were on such and such a street and such and such a place. And she said, you know, we just came from that street. And what the person who lives in Hattiesburg was saying that you shouldn't be in that neighborhood that the police had to escort the power company into that neighborhood to restore power because it was too dangerous for them to go in there alone. I said, well, we didn't have any problem. But that's because we didn't know. Because it's really not my habit to just drive into danger. Nor is it yours. You see, if you think somewhere is dangerous, then you avoid it. And you certainly, those who you love, you're going to keep from going there. I mean, we, we don't think like this. Because on our best day, we're not marvelously good. And so God's response is, I'm going to send my beloved son. That's what the owner of the vineyard says. Probably they will respect him when they see him. So Jesus just puts a little sarcasm in there. There's some some jabs all through this parable. But when the vine dressers saw him, the son, they reasoned among themselves. There's another jab. What did we learn last week? When Jesus, they asked Jesus a question, he turns them around and says, well, what do you think? And what do they do? Reason among themselves. So here we go, reason among themselves, saying, this is the heir. You see, the son has come. This is the one who's going to inherit the rights to all this. So here's what we'll do. We'll kill him. That way, the inheritance will be ours. That way, we'll get everything we want. And so they cast him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Brilliant plan. Hebrews chapter 1, the scripture says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He has made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. This is the Son who shows up into the vineyard. This is the one who God sends. And what is the response? We're going to kill Him. And the very one speaking the parable is yet two days from the cross. He knows exactly what's coming. And he is just predicting the very travesty that is about to be committed by the people that he's speaking to. And so this good God responds to these wicked, disobedient people. Who, who, who seek to serve their own desires, who are only concerned about their own position, their own possession. And what is the desire of their heart? I mean, it's clearly spelled out in the parable. 
What they want is autonomy. What they want is control. What they want is independence. What then? They don't care if it's rightfully theirs. They don't care if they if they deserve it. All they care about is they want it, and they'll do anything to get it. Does that sound familiar? Does that resonate in your heart a little bit? It sounds a lot like Tony Carnes before he met Jesus. That's who I was. I wanted everything for me. All I cared about was me. All I cared about was what I cared about. And if I didn't care about it, I didn't care. And I wasn't going to let anybody tell me anything about how I ought to do things or what I ought to be doing because it was really none of their business. And believe me, I felt justified every day of my life in doing it. But one day, I met the owner of the vineyard. And I realized and recognized that I had been trampling on things that didn't belong to me. That I had been trying to possess things that weren't mine. That I had been trying to take control of something that I couldn't control. You see, that's why that there's this moment when... A dead heart meets the breath, the life of the gospel for the very first time. And all that agony and angst about all the things that, all the strivings of men in their own power and in their own flesh to build their own kingdom and to do their own thing. And you just know it's not working. And you keep trying and you keep trying and you keep grinding it out. And you try to manipulate everything around you to work. But at the end of the day, it won't work. And then suddenly you realize, hold on. There's an owner There's an explanation for this world in which we live in. There's a reason everything is the way it is. There's a creator. There's a designer. There's an inventor. There's a God who reigns supremely. And whenever we're bumping into Him, whenever we're trying to take what is His or or work our will against His, we are going to lose every single time. But you see, it's more than that. It's not just that there is a God, because that would be enough in and of itself. Trust me, it would be. God would have been so just and so amazing and so wonderful if all He would have done was said, Listen, people, I'm God. The end. That would have been amazing. But He didn't just do that. He says, not only am I God, not only am I good, but I'm a marvelous God. So that you, every time you see a cross hanging there, you can, you can see that I'm so good that I didn't just send prophet after prophet after prophet after you killed them and beat them and mocked them and shamed them. But then I sent my son, knowing what you were going to do, but I sent him anyway. Because I'm not just good, I'm marvelously good. This is the God of the vineyard. But we don't just see that he's good and we don't just see that he's marvelously good. Really, what we now transition into is make no mistake about it. He is God, period. Therefore, the end of verse 15, 
What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What now is going to be the response in light of all of this that's happened? Now that you've killed his son, now that you have done the worst thing imaginable, how will he respond? In verse 16, the God of the universe says that he will come and destroy those vine dressers who give the, and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, certainly not. Why would they say certainly not? What what on earth would possess human people to hear this story and say certainly not? When it would make perfect sense that this is what would happen. If it was my vineyard, that's what I would do. If it was my vineyard, I'd get about a hundred gallons of gas. I'd go all the way around the perimeter. While they were sleeping, then I would light it. I'm just being honest. I mean, I would be furious. So when he says, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to remove them. I'm going to give the vineyard to others. They respond, certainly not. Why? Well, well, why would they say that? Because now they, they, they go, "Uh oh, wait a minute. Is he talking about us? Do you mean us, Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. That's bad. That's bad. They didn't mean it. They didn't mean that it was an accident. If they would have known, they wouldn't have done that. No, they say certainly not because they realize what is happening. They realize what Jesus is saying. And then he responds. I... I just think how many people that I've had the opportunity to know and love, their life is going to come down to this moment right here. This next moment right here. Jesus says to these religious people, he looks straight at them, looking at them. He is looking right into the eyes of these religious people. He's looking right into the face of all the people sitting in the pews, going through the routine, doing all the things, just, you know, following their little order that they've always followed. And he says, have you read your Bible? Have you read the Bible? Have you actually gotten the Bible out? opened it up and paid attention to what it says? They know Psalm 118 by heart. Every one of them. They've memorized it. They've sang it a thousand times. And Jesus says, well then, what then is this that is written? And he goes to one of the most familiar scriptures of their life. I mean, this would roll off their tongue like John 3.16 rolls off of ours. And he says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes. It was marvelous in our eyes. We marveled at it. But what happened? What happened? In Acts chapter 4, there comes this moment where Peter and John are arrested. They get in trouble because they they healed a a crippled man. 
And then the man's running around telling everybody, hey, you know, God's healed me. And so all the religious leaders are furious because they're trying to figure out, now, wait a minute, now, how are these two guys healing somebody? And so they arrest them. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter, giving explanation as to what has happened to this man who has been crippled all his life and now is running around totally healed and fine. And he says, let it be known to you all. See, here they are uh, surrounding him and putting him on trial and saying, now you need to explain yourself. By what power and authority do you do this? And Peter says, well, I want you all to know and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. See, he came to the vineyard and you killed him, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man, the man who's now healed, stands before you whole. This is the stone that which was rejected by the builders, which had become the chief cornerstone. You see, the chief cornerstone is Jesus. Peter got that. He understood that. Isaiah tried to warn him and tell him that that was what was going to happen. The psalmist had him singing it for a thousand years and they still didn't get it. They still rejected the stone. And so the stone that's been rejected is the son that was killed. But what they didn't know is that he's the chief cornerstone. In other words, he's the stone that holds the whole building up. Without that stone, there is no building. That is the stone that wasn't cut by human hands. That's the stone that was just perfectly formed and fitted to hold this specific building up, constructed in a specific way by a specific builder. This stone is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, the stone, speaking for himself, he says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, what Jesus is saying to a crowd of people who have eagerly and purposefully misunderstood everything about him. He says, the stone that you reject is going to become the chief cornerstone and you better take care. You better be very, very cautious how you interact with that stone. Because that stone is unlike any other stone. That when you interact with this stone, you better interact with it the way in which this stone desires for you to interact with it. Because if you don't, you're going to be broken. You're going to be crushed. In other words, you don't want to be in a bad relationship with this stone. Isaiah continues his prophecy in Isaiah 8, and he says, He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel. In other words, he's talking about Jesus, and he's going to be a sanctuary, but to the house of Israel, he's going to be a a rock of offense. He goes on to say, and many among them will stumble and they shall fall and be broken. So by the time we get to uh, 
First Peter chapter 2. Peter says, Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Do you see he's talking about the stone? He says, to you who believe he's precious, but to those who are disobedient, to those who have intersected with the stone in the wrong way, to those who made up their own ideas about who the stone is, to those who thought, well, you can kick that stone, you can reject that stone, you can say things about that stone if you want to, you can mock that stone with your behavior. All those people who are disobedient in the way in which they interact with this stone, Peter says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So you see, on one hand, it's a precious gem, this stone. It's the most precious possession of anyone who could possibly possess it. But on another hand, it's your worst nightmare. It's the most horrific experience you could ever imagine. And the shocking truth of Jesus is, is He's declaring who He is to you and me today. And just like then, this morning, we sit in speculation. Consider, well, what exactly does that mean for me? What is God saying to me today? Well, where do I fit into this? How do I respond to this? You know, it's like the Bible uh, for so many people. It's, It's like a map that you hang on to in case you get lost. And so it's not that valuable because you know where you are. The only people that really cherish a map are people who have been with me in some foreign jungle lost out of their mind. That map becomes the most precious thing in the world because we know we're lost. But you see, when you think you know where you're going, when you think you've got it all figured out, then the map is... it's It's just something that you have. It's just a possession that you have, but you could live without it. It's like a... It's like we look at Jesus and we think, you know, it wouldn't make any sense in any other context of our life. I mean, no one in here would would develop some horrible health condition, some life-threatening disease. None of us in here would go to a doctor, choose a doctor, and then when someone said, well, why did you choose that doctor? Well, I like that doctor because he always tells me what I want to hear. You wouldn't do that. You would not do that. You would go to a doctor that you felt like was going to tell you the truth, was going to give you the best information, was going to tell you everything you needed to know and guide you in the right direction. But when it comes to this doctor, when it comes to this stone, we're just not sure we need it. We're just not sure we're lost. And you see, it shows in so many ways. The the fact that Jesus has become something so foreign to what the Scripture poses that the truth will for sure never draw a crowd. It never will. Because it's just not pleasing to the heart. You see, you hang around Christians long enough and you're going to pick up on certain tendencies. 
For example, there'll be groups that'll get together. Maybe there'll be uh, maybe there'll be a group in this very church today during Sunday school, and they'll be just elated and and so joyful and so happy because God has done something wonderful for them, which He has, and they should be happy. But then right on the other side of the wall, there may be another group of Christians who possess the same Bible, worship the same stone, and someone will be talking about, I don't know why God is punishing me this way. I try and I try and I try and everything seems to go wrong in my life. And it's wrong and it's wrong and it's wrong. And why... Why doesn't God fix this? Why doesn't God do something? And so on one hand, when God is good to us, we're rejoicing and we're happy. And on another hand, when God's not good to us in our own mind, then something's wrong. And our theology goes completely off the deep end. God is not a genie in a bottle. It's not a -a make-a-wish God. You can't just say that when things are good, oh God, you're, you're God, you're wonderful, you're all powerful, you're sovereign, you're the Lord of lords and the King of kings. But then when something doesn't go your way, suddenly, well, wait a minute, what happened, God? Where are you? Where? Either he's God or he's not. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you can encounter the stone one of two ways. But there's only two ways. It's either precious to you or it's going to crush you. One or the other. And so what happens is, is that it's a regular, it's a regular experience in our Christianity to see people who fizzle in and fizzle out. People, they'll come and they'll, they'll make a profession, they'll make a commitment, they'll make some sort of a, a declaration. And then a month later, where are they? Where'd they go? In about another month, month and a half, we'll get our, our yearly report of all the Baptist churches in the state of Mississippi. And I'll do the same thing I always do. I'll look in there and it'll, it'll show what your attendance is, what your Sunday school attendance is, what your small group attendance is. It'll show how many people were baptized that year. It'll show all those things. And I have one for every single year. And what you can do is you can go in there and you can see that they'll have this big list of these, you know, here's the, here's the churches that have baptized 500 people last year or something crazy like that. And you go to last year's book and you look at it and then you get this year's book and you look at it and it's the same number of people. In other words, Sunday school is the same or worship service is the same. But a zillion people got baptized. Well, where are they? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. 
They came to Jesus looking for comfort. They didn't come to Jesus looking for truth. They came looking for comfort. You can't come looking for comfort. You'll receive comfort if you come looking for truth. But you can't come looking for comfort. You see, if you come wanting Jesus to fix all your problems, if you come because hell seems scary, that's not how you intersect with the chief cornerstone. Let me finish Isaiah's prophecy and you'll see what I'm talking about. Here's what Isaiah said. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. Notice, please. God says, please, judge between me and my vineyard. Make a decision. Which side of the cornerstone are you going to be on? But decide. Verse 4, What more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not already done in it? What more could I have given you? How could I have possibly set the table any easier, any better? I built a tower. I built a hedge. I planted the, the best vine on the best fertile soil. I did all the work to prepare everything for you. Why then, he says, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it to waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so the root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Don't you see what the crime in the vineyard is? Don't you see what the crime of Christianity today is? is that you and I do not have the luxury of a designer Jesus that fits in to our lifestyle or our structure. That's not the way it works. And whether or not we believe, whether or not we think it's right or wrong, it doesn't matter. If it seems good to you, if it seems just to you, it's not up for debate. It is what it is. The Bible clearly says, I have given you everything you need. It is laid out before you. I have given you insight beyond insight. I have given chance after chance after chance. Stop playing games with the stone. Because if you are not careful, it will crush you. And the way, the way... To ensure that you are not crushed by this stone is to come to this stone seeking 
truth. To come to this stone according to His Word. According to who He is. It's to come to Him as the Lord. Not as your homeboy. Not as your friend. Not as somebody you hang out with. Not as your co-pilot. As the Lord. Which means that from that day forward... Oh, peace and comfort will come into your heart like you can't imagine. But externally, you you will undoubtedly face great persecution. That this world is not going to revere you for wanting to live for God. But listen, he's he's not a genie in a bottle. And he's not a consultant. He's not giving us advice for us to consider and then determine, well, I don't know if that's for me or not. He's so good and so wonderful that He's this honest with us. He says, here's here's who I am. I own this vineyard. Everything that you have ever seen or experienced or touched, smelled, it all belongs to me. All of it. I'm the owner. And I've sent all of the servants. And that didn't solve your problem. So I sent my son right into the vineyard. The one who's speaking and in two days will be crucified. But I did that. So that you might know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I am the Lord, but not just the Lord, but a marvelously good God who loves people who deserve nothing so much that I would give everything to remove every hindrance every doubt from our lives. So please, please, reckon with the truth of the Jesus of the Bible and understand something. That on, if you're here this morning and you are saved, let's help each other with something. On our worst day, if the most catastrophic thing we can imagine happens, if your greatest fear comes true, if my greatest fear comes true, if I forget in that moment, will you remind me? Remind me. Say, Tony, I know right now that you feel like everything in the world has fallen apart. I know right now you don't think you can make it another step. But you remind me. You know the chief cornerstone. He's precious to you. 
You cling to that stone in your moment of trial and grief and pain and suffering. And you say, no matter what may come, God, I got this stone. I'm holding this as most precious to me. That this God is so good and so glorious that if everything I had were stripped away, this treasure would be so wonderful. I'd sell everything I own just simply to possess it, to hold it, to know it. Let's help each other with that. Let's stop sending a message to the world that God's good when He does good things, but He's not so good when good things don't happen. He's precious. If you know Him, His preciousness is never diminished. He's never less than marvelously good because He's God and He's revealed Himself to us and He didn't have to do any of that. And listen to me, there's no one in heaven today. There's no one in heaven today complaining or worrying or fretting or wondering. Remember, He's precious. And that's true. And if you don't know Him today, stop playing games with Him. Respond to the God of the universe. And if you're fearful right now, if your head is is just running with all these ideas and you're just thinking, well, what about this? Well, what about this? Just, just be still for a minute and understand what I've just said. He sent servant after servant after servant and then He sent His Son. And He knew what we would do, but He sent Him anyway. Anyway, why would you resist that God? Why? Why? Because every, every tree is judged how? By its fruit. And every life is either going to produce good grapes or wild grapes. Or we're going to reckon with the owner of the vineyard. We're all going to give account with the owner of the vineyard. And I simply say that to say that's the truth. So let's respond this morning to the truth. The truth of what the Scripture says about who we are and about who He is. He is good. He is marvelously good. Because He is God. Let's stand, bow our heads, close our eyes. We want to be conscious that in this moment people are making decisions that could affect their eternity. As the Spirit of God is working in hearts, moving among us, let's pray together and seek His face and pray for ourselves, pray for the people around us. Lord God, we come before You and we say, Lord, thank You. Thank You for being so honest with us. Thank You for telling us, Lord, exactly like it is. We are so very grateful for Your Word, Lord. And where it is hard and where it hurts, we know it's for our good and we thank you for that. Father, help us to respond accordingly to what you've said. Oh, Lord, there are people in this room. Father, they're playing games with you, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, that today, they will respond to the God of the universe.
who sent His Son to die for the sins of the world. Lord, help us to feel the weight of eternity pressing down upon us right now. Lord, those of us in this room who are in known rebellion to you right now. Lord, your altar is open. We may come and find healing and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Lord, remind us of how precious the stone is. Oh, Lord, thank you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. The altar's open. If you'd like to come, you come. If I could pray for you, encourage you in any way, you come. I'm here. The other pastors are here. We're just here to serve you and to love you and to help you. If you want to come and plant your life in this church and, and grow as part of this family, you come. We, we want to receive you. We want to, we want to talk with you and help you. But we're here. Just respond as the Lord leads.